Oftentimes that means we're, we're waiting on his promises. We're, we're waiting for the things that he has said to be fulfilled in our lives. And that's exactly what we're going to see as we continue in the life of the man Joseph today. As you remain standing in honor of the word of God, let me introduce you to the key text today from Genesis chapter 46 verses 3 and 4. This is, this is God himself speaking to Joseph's father, Israel, in a dream. Listen now to what God says. Here's God's word. He says, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt and will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hands shall close your eyes. Now, if that sounds strange to you, we'll, we'll recap all of that in a minute. Let's go ahead and have a seat. And let me set some things up for you by, by zeroing in our attention on this idea of a promise. I mean, let me ask you, when was the last time that you wanted someone to trust you? Or, or maybe better yet, when was the last time someone asked you to trust them? You know, I think we all have lots of examples, and especially examples of young people that are in our lives that we're, we want them to trust us as we help them navigate the decisions of life and, and the way they live. I, I remember being a young man learning to drive. I remember those first few times behind the wheel, and, and my dad sitting next to me giving me so much instruction. I mean, you might remember what it's like learning to drive. For me, getting behind the wheel, I would get nervous any time a car was coming toward me in the opposite lane. And so, you know, just to protect myself, to protect the vehicle, I would just kind of veer a little bit to the right, just so that I had a little bit of margin so that car wouldn't come near me or I wouldn't come near it. And so as I would veer to the right, I would, you know, the tires would go off the road just a little bit. They'd be, and my dad, he'd be like, no, no, here's how you have to do it. Here's how you have to have your eyes, where you have to put your eyes. You have to, you have to trust that car's not going to hit you if you stay in your lane. And, and over and over again, I would make the same mistake. And over and over again, my dad would try to get me to, to, to trust him. In fact, I remember his words, Mike, I promise you that car will not hit you. Just stay in your lane. I promise you. Those are powerful words, right? When we stand before someone else and when we make a promise to someone, we are trying to guarantee to them that our words are true. And we do that as humans. We do that as fathers with our children. How much more so, how much more so with the promises of God? When God says to you and I, listen, I promise you. And just like me, when my dad says, I promise you, if you stay in your lane, you'll be just fine. And just like for me, I had, I had to let my actions match the promise of my father. And that's what we're going to see today. In fact, what we're going to see today, the big idea is that God's people act upon God's promises. Well, let me say that again. God's people, those who trust in the, the crucified, buried, and risen Christ, God's people, they're not just meant to nod at the promises of God or like, oh yeah, that's, that's cool, God. But, but in, instead, God's people, they're meant to trust and in trusting, act upon the promises of God. And so that said, let's open up the scripture. Would you open up your Bibles to, to Genesis chapter 46? Today we're going to look at chapter 46 and chapter 47. Two chapters. Now you might be thinking, two whole chapters, wow. But those who were here last week, you're thinking, oh, that's a relief. Because last week we covered three, right? And so we only are going to cover two chapters today. And, and as we do, I want to set the stage by reminding us of where we are in the story. 
Some of you, you're, you're visiting, you're, you're a guest here. Maybe you have not been tracking with us. Maybe you're here and you forgot the last few weeks. And so let me, uh, let me give you the flyby. This is not the detailed version. This is the, the long story short version of the life of Joseph up to this point. If you were to turn back to Genesis 37, you would find that, that Joseph, he is, he is the son of a man named Jacob or Israel. In Israel, he has 12 sons. He also has daughters. He has 12 sons from four different wives or women. And one of them is his favorite. His favorite is Joseph. And he lets his favoritism show in broad daylight. And as you can imagine, it makes his brothers jealous. In fact, they hate him. They hate him because of his, brother, or his father's favoritism. And so there is a day when his brothers are tending their flock way away from home, and Joseph goes to check on them. And again, long story short, his brothers see him, they lay hands upon him, and they sell him into slavery. Joseph finds himself a slave in the land of Egypt. Not only that, but again, I'm skipping over a lot, Joseph finds himself in prison in the land of Egypt. In a dungeon, in a pit, he calls it. He finds himself in prison until, through God's sovereign hand, God brings Joseph to stand before the king of Egypt, the king whose name is King Pharaoh. Joseph stands before Pharaoh, and by God's power, Joseph is able to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Pharaoh has two nightmares, basically, and Joseph not only knows the meaning of them, but Joseph gives Pharaoh a strategic plan on how to act based upon his dreams. In that moment, Pharaoh elevates Joseph out of the pit, out of prison, and he makes Joseph second in command over all of Egypt. Pharaoh is king, but as we've been saying, Joseph runs the thing. <laughs> Joseph is in charge of everything. And in that, over the next seven years of plentiful harvest, Joseph is able to, he's able to accumulate grain beyond measure. There's so much abundance here. He, he just has storehouse upon storehouse. And at the end of those seven years of great harvest, seven years of great famine, severe famine begin. Our story finds us back in Canaan where Jacob, Joseph's father, who thinks Joseph is dead, he has sent his, other, his sons to the land of Egypt to buy grain. They go. Things don't go super well with them. Joseph knows who they are. They don't know who Joseph is. But it, the long story short, Joseph sends them back home with grain, and then they have to return again to the land of Egypt, bringing their youngest brother. Then last week, this is what we saw. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. They're overwhelmed with emotion. Joseph is overwhelmed. The brothers are overwhelmed with fear because they're thinking, this is the guy we sold into slavery, and he's the most powerful man we've ever been before. He is going to get rid of us. But that's not what Joseph does. Joseph blesses them. Joseph sends them back to the land of Canaan, not only with all the supplies they need, but with wagon upon wagon so that they can bring dad and the entire family of Israel from the land of Canaan to the land of Egypt so that they can survive this great and severe famine. And that's where our story finds us. That's where our story finds us as we turn to Genesis 46. And in Genesis 46, we are going to find that God comes and he appears to Israel. Just so we're clear, Israel and Jacob is the same person. 
God has renamed him, but, but the text uses both names. A Jacob and Israel, you're going to hear me say both of them interchangeably. In fact, I'll probably call Joseph Joshua because I've been saying it so much that I make these mental mistakes occasionally. So if, that's, if that happens, just say, Mike's, Mike's losing his mind. He's, he's lost it. But that said, let's open up to Genesis 46. Let's pick up where we, we've left off, and here's what we're going to see from the start. We're going to see, first of all, that God is a God of promises. God is a God who makes promises. God is a God who keeps his promises. God is a God of promises. Here we go. Chapter 46, verses 1 through 4. So Israel took his, took his journey with all that he had and came to Beersheba. And he offered sacrifices to God, to the God of his father Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions in the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. He, Jacob or Israel, he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. I myself will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also bring you up again, and Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. Now, this is, this is where our story begins today. This story begins with God making promises. But notice, when God makes promises, he starts simply by identifying himself. He says two things. He says, I am God, as in I am the one true God is I, I am the only God. I am the God who reigns supreme. I am the God is, who is transcendent and above every other so-called God or spiritual force. I am God who is transcendent. But then he says, I am the God of your father. I am the God who is near. I am the God who is, who is imminent, who, who is personal. He, he reveals himself as the God who is God and the God who is near. And then based on his self-revelation of who he is. He, he makes these four promises to Jacob or to Israel. Look at these four promises with me. The, the first promise, God promises greatness to Israel. He promises greatness to Israel. He says, do not be afraid, afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. Now this is the echoing of promises to his father and his father's father. This is the echo of the, the, the promise to Abraham, that Abraham would become great and that he would be blessed so he could bless others. This is that trickle-down effect where this promise is made to make him great. But what else? The second promise is he promises his presence to be with Israel. He says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. He, you're not going to Egypt alone. You're not going to go and, and find yourself separated from me. You're not going to find that if you leave the land of Canaan, the promised land, and we're going to talk a lot about the land today and how important that is. If you leave this promised land, you're going to find that I'm still going to be with you. You're not going to be separated from me. And the third promise is actually the land itself. God promises the land to Israel. He says, and I will also bring you up again. This is the promise that God's people will return to the promised land. God's people will return to the land that God has made promise to them. And then the fourth promise is God promises peace in death to Israel. These last few words, in Joseph's hand shall close your eyes. This is a, this is a peaceful moment. I mean, if you remember chapter 58 at the very end of it, 
Jacob, he says, it's enough that my son is alive. Let me go to Egypt so I can see him, and then, and then I can die. This is what he wants. He wants this reconciliation. He wants this, this being with his son again, this son who he's not seen for over two decades, this son who he has thought is dead. He says that son is going to close your eyes. He's going he's to put your eyelids down when you breathe your last. These are the promises God makes to Israel. These promises basically come and land in Israel's lap. And now Israel, he has to make a decision. He is in Beersheba. He has not gone to Egypt yet. He's on the way, and he has to make a decision. Do I, do I say, you know what, this trip is too hard, and, and it's too scary to go to Egypt where there's all the, the, these foreign religions, and, and I'm not sure what's going to happen? Do, do I go back to where it's supposedly safe to, to my promised land, to the land of, of Canaan, or, or am I going to act in obedience? Am I going to trust in these promises? And what we see is that Israel, at least in this moment, Israel acts in obedience. Follow along, verses 5 through 7. We see that Israel, he, he acts upon the promises of God. He acts in obedience. It says, then Jacob, or Israel, he set out from Beersheba. The sons of Israel carried Jacob, their father, their little ones, and their wives in the wagons that Pharaoh had sent to carry him. They also took their livestock and their goods, which they had gained in the land of Canaan, and they came into Egypt, Jacob and all his offspring with him, his sons and his sons' sons with him, his daughters and his sons' daughters, all his offspring he brought with him into Egypt. And then you have verses 8 through 27, which is a list of all of, the, all of these family members, all of these people that he brings with him from Canaan into the land of Egypt. So look, at, look at this massive amount of people that come with him into Egypt. But the point here, the point that we need to drive home is Israel is obeying God even as it appears that Israel is moving away from the promises of God. We can't overemphasize this. God has promised the land that is flowing with milk and honey. God has promised the land of Canaan. That is, that is the land that Israel is expecting, and they're going to be promised over and over again. But at this moment, where are they going? They're going the opposite away from the promises of God, but they're walking in obedience. They're, they're walking in faith. So, so I want us to see here, he is acting on the promises. He's acting in obedience. And, and as he acts in obedience, we see now that God begins to fulfill these promises. God says, this is what I promised you. And then we see these promises begin to be fulfilled. But what we see is these promises are not fulfilled all at once. God doesn't come and, and back a dump truck of promises right onto the lap of, of Israel and say, oh, there you are. You get them all right now. I mean, we, we probably know this already because later we're going to talk about promises God has made to you. But listen, if all the promises God has made to believers in Christ, if they came true instantaneously, what, what would that mean for us? We, we wouldn't be here. <laughs> I mean, imagine that. It would be like the moment someone believes in Christ, they trust in his death and resurrection, and they say, beam me up, Scotty. Boom. They're in the heavenly realm. They're, they're no longer here on earth. No, God progressively fulfills his promises to his people. This is often how he works. And so that's what we're going to see as we continue in this text. We, we see almost like stage after stage, the very first stage, we see that God fulfills his promises as he, as he reconnects Jacob with his family. He reunites them. Go down to verse 28 of, of chapter 26. 
we're going to see that God reconnects Jacob's family. He brings Jacob and Joseph together. Now, now, honestly, if you've been following along, when we say that, you should almost say, finally. It's been over two decades. Look at this incredible story. 28 through 34. He, Jacob, had sent Judah ahead of him to Joseph to show the way before him in Goshen. And they came into the land of Goshen. Then Joseph prepared his chariot and went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. He presented himself to him and fell on his neck and wept on his neck a good while. Israel said to Joseph, Now let me die, since I have seen your face and know that you are still alive. <laughs> this is the payoff, church. And this is amazing. In this moment, Jacob sends Judah ahead to lead the way, and Judah goes ahead, and, and now jo Joseph knows that they're coming. And so what does Joseph do? Joseph gets in his chariot. Remember what chariot he drives? He, he drives the, the second best chariot in all of Egypt, right? I mean, we've got to remember, this is, in that day, this is like Pharaoh has the, the Lamborghini and, and Joseph has the Ferrari. And you've got to imagine he brings his chariot out, chariot out, and he's not alone. He probably has his entourage of people, and he comes out to greet his father. And you know what? He's kind of probably showing off a little bit. Dad, look at me in all of my glory. Look at what God has done. And he meets his father. And what do they do? They fall upon each other's necks. They weep. As they embrace. The text says they do this a good while. The, the Hebrew word there means over and over. This is, like, this is like when a soldier who has been stationed overseas for a long time. Well, you guys have seen the videos, right? They come home and maybe they surprise their, their spouse. Or maybe they surprise their child. And the, their, their wife or their child. They come and they grab onto them. And they cling to them as if they're never going to let go. Over and over again, they fall upon each other's neck and they weep. It's like the, the moment they gain composure and they start to, to separate the talk, it's like they, they let go, only to grab each other again and, and to hold each other near. This is that moment. Jacob's words, all right, Lord, take me home. I, I can die now. My son, who I thought was devoured by wild animals, he's alive. I'm holding him. God is fulfilling his promise. God's fulfilling his promise. And so the stage one is this reconnection. And then stage two, we're going to see God stripping away barriers to the rest of these promises being fulfilled. Stage two is really God removes the barriers to his promises. God removes the barriers to his promises. Let's pick back up verse 31 of chapter 46. And in this, we're going to see God removing these, these barriers. We're going to see that God does this through Joseph's plan. God does this through uh, Israel's blessing of Pharaoh. But ultimately, God does this as he shows his mighty, sovereign providence in their lives. Pick up with me in verse 31. Joseph said to his brothers and to his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh, and I will say to him, my brothers and my father's household who were in the land of Canaan have come to me. 
And the men are shepherds, for they have been keepers of livestock, and they have brought their flocks and their herds and all that they have. When Pharaoh calls you and says, what is your occupation? You shall say, your servants have been keepers of livestock from our youth, even until now, both we and our fathers, in order that you may dwell in the land of Goshen, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Joseph says, here's the plan, guys. When Pharaoh calls us, here is what I want you to say. It's almost like the brother like, okay, guys, don't mess up the plan. These are the words you need to say. He lays out the plan, and verses 1 through 4, the plan goes perfectly. Pharaoh calls them in. He, he has this conversation. It's basically repeated almost word for word. The brothers give the correct answer. And then pick up in verse 5. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Your father and your brothers have come to you. The land of Egypt is before you. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land. Let them settle in the land of Goshen. And if you know any able men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. Here's what happens. Pharaoh says to Joseph, he says, okay, they, they can have the, whatever land they want. In fact, they can have the best land for shepherding. And I want you to put your brothers, if they're able to, I want you to put them in charge of my livestock, right? Because he's already put Joseph in charge of his whole kingdom. He says, I want you to put them in charge of my livestock. The, the plan is, it's, it's, it's working perfectly. And, and why is Pharaoh so generous here? We, we have to remember, Pharaoh is so generous because Joseph has saved Egypt, Joseph's plan, Joseph's action, Joseph's administration over the land of Egypt. He has saved the people of Egypt. And so Pharaoh's, uh, Pharaoh's very agreeable to this. And then after the brothers leave, then Joseph brings in dad. He brings in the patriarch of God's people. Chapter 47, verses 1 through, actually verses 7 through 11. It says, Then Joseph brought in Jacob his father and stood, before, and stood him before Pharaoh. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, How many are the days of the years of your life? And Jacob said to Pharaoh, The days of the years of my sojourning are 130 years. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they have not attained to the days of the years of life of my fathers in the days of their sojourning. And Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And went out from the presence of Pharaoh. Then Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession of the land of Egypt in the best of the land, in the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. So dad comes in and gets to meet Pharaoh. Now this is the patriarch of Israel meeting Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And, and Pharaoh says, how, how old are you? <laughs> how many days do you have, are, are your years? And, and uh and Jacob says, well, they've been short, and they've been evil, and they've been 130. Anybody here feel like that, that's your life? I, I don't think any of us are closing in on 130, but ever, anyone ever feel that way in your back and in your joints? This is how Jacob describes his days. He says they've been short and evil. Why? Well, many of those days were days of mourning. Many of those days are days of exile from his family when he fled after his betrayal of his brother Esau. Many of those days were, were dealing with Laban and, and all of the, the drama that goes back earlier in Genesis. And many of those days were as he thought his favorite son had been killed. So my days have been full of, of evil. 
full of pain, full of sorrow. But even in that, Jacob blesses Pharaoh. This is kind of strange. This is one of those instances when, when the lesser is blessing the greater. Pharaoh is king of Egypt. He is the most powerful world or most powerful man in the known world at that time. And Jacob, he is a shepherd in the land of Canaan, maybe even living in tents. And in this moment, he blesses him, not as a, a lesser to a greater, but more likely as the patriarch of God's chosen people, Israel, blessing this, this pagan nation. You know, it's interesting. We could pause here and we can even just see, we, we can see uh, hints of God's desire for the nations Hints of God's love for all people, even in Genesis, even in this great narrative when God has his chosen people, the Jewish people, and yet he is preparing for his blessing to be to many others. Well, let's keep going. We see this, this uh, plan unfolding. The brothers go before Pharaoh, and then, and then Jacob goes before Pharaoh, and then ultimately we see God's hand in all of this. Look at 4712. It says, And Joseph provided his father his brothers, and all his father's household with food according to the number of their dependents. Now you read this, you say, oh, Joseph is providing, but let's remember who's really doing the provision here. Let's remember whose hand is really at work. Do you remember last week when Joseph revealed himself to his brothers? When he said, it, it's me, your brother, Joseph, and, and they were nervous because they were afraid that they sent him there, that they sold him into slavery, that he would want vengeance upon them. Remember what he said? Look at chapter 57, verses 7 and 8. These are Joseph's words. These are some of the greatest words ever. Look at what he says. He says, and God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He, God, has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. This is God's hand. This is God's sovereign hand providing for, for Egypt, but even more than that, providing for Israel, providing for, for, God's, Jewish, for God's chosen people in the land at that day. And what you see here is really, you see this gradual fulfillment as God's promises. He's proving true with them. He is fulfilling them little by little. But, but if we pause here, here's what we see. God's made promises. Some of God's promises have been fulfilled. Some of them have yet to be fulfilled. Some of them are still far off. And this is the moment that I think we find ourselves in most often. God has made promises to us. God has made great promises. We're going to talk about those in a little bit. But, but the promises of God, oftentimes in this life, they're only partially fulfilled. The promises of God, we get, to get, we get to get our hand on part of them, but we don't get to experience them completely in this side of heaven. And so we find ourselves oftentimes living this life as sojourners, feeling like our days are short and full of evil, right? Feeling like we have so much to deal with, and yet God has made great promises. What do we do in the middle? What do we do as we've only partially experienced fulfillment of promises and we're waiting for the ultimate fulfillment? That's what we see in the rest of this text. And what I would argue to you is, is that God's people, they live as stewards in hope of God's promises. 
Those who are stuck in the middle, those who are waiting for ultimate fulfillment, those who are experienced the promises of God in part, but not fully, we wait. And what do we do as we wait? We steward in hope. We steward looking forward in hope to the ultimate fulfillment. Now let's, let's make sure we're on the same page about that word steward. What is a steward? A steward is someone who faithfully cares for what has been entrusted to them. Now, a steward is someone who is not the owner, but they are the one who manages something for the one who is the owner. It's like if I were to lend you my car and say, hey, yeah, you can, you can use it. Hopefully you would be a good steward. You would return it with a tank full of gas and, and it, it washed on the outside and polished and, and detailed. In fact, does anybody want to borrow my, my car? Hopefully you would be a good steward. But here's the reality. You don't own anything. Everything we have is God's. Even if you, you, you have plenty of wealth, all the wealth that you've earned, it, it's come because God has given you an intellect and he's given you abilities and he has worked in your life providing for you. It's all God's. Everything we have is God's. And so as we are those who are waiting in the middle, who have experienced some fulfillment of God's promises and are hopeful for the ultimate fulfillment of God's promises, what do we do in the middle? We live as stewards in hope of God's promises. And we don't do this when life is just easy and everything works out our way. And it's like, you know, whatever we touch works out perfectly. In fact, the opposite is true. Let's continue in the text Let's see the situation and the circumstance that Joseph lives as a steward, and I would argue he lives as a steward in a situation that might at first glance look good, but it really is not ideal. First of all, Joseph stewards in unideal situations. Let me show you what I mean. Verses 13 and 14. It says, Now there was no food in all the land, for the famine was very severe. So that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished by reason of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan in exchange for the grain that they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. Now this, you know, you put yourself in Joseph's shoes. He's second in command over all of Egypt. He's probably really wealthy. He's probably, you know, has whatever luxury he wants. But, but we need to remember, this is not the ideal situation. They are, in, they are in a state of famine. In fact, the state of famine is, says the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan is languishing. It's wasting away. I want you to picture in your mind like dry Saharan desert where, where the land is so dry that there's just giant cracks because all of the moisture has just been sucked out by the heat of the sun and the land is barren. The land is languishing. This is the land of Egypt and this is the land of Canaan, the land that's ultimately going to be promised to God's people. This is not the ideal situation in fact, who is Joseph working for? Joseph's not bringing the money into the, the household of Israel. Where, where is all of this money that people are using to buy the grain going to? It, to, to Pharaoh. Just bluntly speaking, Joseph is serving a pagan king for a pagan king's wealth. This is an unideal situation, yet Joseph is he's a faithful steward. 
Not only is he a steward in an unideal situation, but, but he's a steward with this un- unclear fulfillment. God's made some promises, and, and God is working out his promises in this moment, and yet things aren't as clear as they could be. Things are a little bit confusing for him. Look at verses 15, through 15 and 16. It says, And when the money was all spent in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan, all the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, Give us food. Why should we die before your eyes? For our money is gone. Look, all of the land has spent their very last dime on food. They have no money left. Verse 16, And Joseph answered, Give your livestock, and I will give you food in exchange for your livestock if your money is gone. And so this is what happens. They bring their livestock, and they trade livestock for grain. And then they come back to him. If you were to read verses 17 through 26, I'm just going to summarize it. They come back to him, and they say, okay, we've given you our money. We've given you our livestock. And so Joseph says, well, sell me your land, and, and sell me yourselves. The people, that they sell not just their money for grain, not just their livestock for grain, not just their land for grain, but their very selves. They become servants to Pharaoh so that he owns everything. Everything. Then you get verse 27, which almost seems out of place. Because up to this point, it's been talking about Egypt growing in wealth, Egypt growing in wealth, Egypt growing in wealth. Verse 27, thus Israel settled in the land of Egypt, in the land of Goshen, and they gained possession of it and were fruitful and multiplied greatly. As Joseph is faithfully serving Pharaoh, God is faithfully growing Israel. It's almost like they're tucked over here in the corner of Goshen, and as they do, they're, they're not just being fruitful. They're not just being multiplying. It says they're multiplying greatly. Now, for those who can fast forward in your mind to the next book of the Bible, the book of Exodus, you remember the problem for Egypt at the beginning of Exodus? There were too many Israelites. They were overwhelmed with Israelites, and so, so Egypt in Exodus is actually killing Children, male children, because there's too many Israelites. What is God doing here? God is slowly and steadily fulfilling his promises, even though if you were Joseph or you were Israel, you're looking around and you're wondering, how is this working? You're thinking, we are in the land of Egypt. We're not in the land of Canaan. How, is, how are God's promises going to come true? And yet God has said, I will, I will make you a great nation where? In Egypt. God slowly, steadily fulfilling his promises. And then finally, you see Joseph steward in what I would call unpleasant progress. Things keep moving forward, but, but it's not a happy story. Pick up in verse 28. It says, And Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. Now, just time out for a second. How long did Joseph live with his dad in the land of Canaan? 17 years. And then he spent all this time separated from his father. And then his father came and lived with Joseph in the land of Egypt. How long? 17 years. The 17 years, it serves as the bookmarks here. And as it does, or the bookends, here's what it says next. It says, So the days of Jacob, the years of his life, were 147 
And when the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, put your hand under my thigh and promise to deal kindly and truly with me. Do not bury me in Egypt, but let me lie with my fathers. Carry me out of Egypt and bury me in their burying place. Joseph answered, I will do as you have said. And he said, swear to me. And Joseph swore to him. Then Israel bowed himself upon the head of his bed. Now, he doesn't die here in this moment, but, but dad's about to die. Dad is about to die, and he is going to die not in the land of promise, not in the land of flowing with milk and honey, not in the land of Canaan. He is about to die in Egypt, separated from the burial place of his forefathers. And so he brings Joseph to him, and he says, Joseph, I want you to make me a promise. In fact, he has Joseph put his hand on his thigh. This is like the most vulnerable place. This is how you would make a covenant in many ways. This is saying, I trust you, uh, and I trust that your word right now as you make a promise that you will be faithful to fulfill it. And so Joseph swears to him. He swears to him. This is, this is not pleasant progress. This is unpleasant progress. This is, this is the reality that dad is going to die, and dad's going to die in Egypt. Even so, God has made promises. Even so, God has been faithful. And so even in this, we see that God's people, they are acting on God's promises. Israel, what did he do? He left the land. Joseph, what has he done? He's been a faithful steward. This story, this great picture of God making promises, it reminds us not only that God is a God who makes promises, but it shows us that God's people, they live, they act according to the promises of God. So, so let me ask you, what, what promises has God made to you? Has God made you any promises? Has God promised a new car to anyone in the room? How about, uh, has God promised health and wealth to anyone in the room? You just know it for sure. Has, it, has God promised that your family life's going to be perfect and without turmoil or drama? Has God promised that life is going to be easy and that everything you touch will turn to gold? What has God promised? I would argue God has made very similar promises to his people, the church, that he made to his people, Israel. I would, I would argue he made very similar promises. I think Israel and the church are different. We can get into that a different day. But, but his promises are very, very similar. In fact, let's think about the promises he made to, to this man, Israel, specifically. God promised him greatness. We saw that in the beginning. God promised his presence. God promised the land. And God promised peace in death. I would say that God has made similar promises, parallel promises to you. And, and I want to tell you what those promises are. I want to remind you. We could stay here all day and talk about the promises of God. But I want to remind you of what God has promised us. But before I do that, I want to be very clear about something. God's promises, they apply to a specific group of people they don't necessarily apply to everyone in this room. The specific group of people is not those who are a certain gender. 
It's not those who are a certain race. It's not those who are a specific socioeconomic level, whether you're rich or poor. God's promises, they apply to a certain person, and that person is, is the only qualification. That person is the person who is trusted in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. God's promises apply only to those who are sitting here or watching online who have looked at their life and they've realized that they are covered in the guilt of their sin. They have rebelled against God and God's law, and so they stand condemned. And so because of that, they need help. And the only help that they can find for their sin is the help that comes in Jesus, who lived a perfect, sinless life. And then he went to the cross carrying all of my guilt and all of your guilt, all of our sin and all of our shame, and he paid the price in full. He died in our place. He was buried, and on the third day, by the power of God, he was resurrected from the grave, and he's alive forevermore. The Bible teaches so clearly, the Scripture says, anyone and everyone who believes this truth, you receive these promises we're about to look at. You receive the promises of forgiveness. You receive the promises of hope. But let me get specific. Let me talk about the promises given to Israel and how we have the same, or we have parallel promises given to us. Well, let's talk about this first one. How about, how about his greatness? God promised Israel greatness. Has God promised you greatness? Maybe not the way you've imagined it, but I would argue he has. Turn, turn to John 14. If you've got your Bible, we're going we're gonna to look at a few passages, passages in John 14. I, I'd like to spend all day here. I'm, I'm not going to do that, but let, let's just look at a few correlations between the promises God gave to Israel and the promises God has given us. John 14, verse 12. Jesus' words here. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me, time out, whoever believes the gospel, whoever is trusted in Jesus and his death and resurrection, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. This is amazing. This says that you are going to do greater works than Jesus. Jesus, the one who would walk on water, the one who would heal the sick, give sight to the blind, who even resurrected people. This says that you can do greater works than these. Has anybody ever walked on water, by the way, here? What are the greater works that you and I do? The greater work that we do is the, the continued expansion of the gospel message to the ends of the world, earth. As we join the mission of Jesus Christ to share the love of Jesus and the story of his death and resurrection to more and more people, this is, this is the greater work that we do. We see the gospel going from a, a ragtag group of people that surrounded Jesus in Jerusalem to ultimately going to the ends of the earth. This is the greatness that you're promised. And this is not a greatness that's promised to pastors and those who are theologically educated or those super Christians who never seem to mess up. Listen, if you have trusted in Jesus in his death and resurrection, whether you're young or old, whether you're super faithful or you stumble sometimes, listen, this is a promise for every single one of us. This is his greatness promised to us, his work through us. His greatness. What about the second promise? God promised Israel, I will be with you, even more so us today. God promises us his presence in his Holy Spirit. His Holy Spirit that dwells in us. John 14, still, verses 16 and 17, it says, Jesus is speaking, he says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Forever. 
even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because why? Why? It neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The moment you hear and believe the gospel of truth is the moment the Spirit of God seals you and dwells in you. Once again, regardless of age, regardless of gender, regardless of ethnicity, regardless of any of the externals, if you have trusted in Jesus, his presence is with you right now and forevermore. He has promises to you. How about the third promise? The third promise is his place. He, he promised Israel the land. You know what he's promised you and I? Heaven. Go, go back to John 14, verses 1 and 2. Jesus says to his disciples, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If you are in Christ... Christ himself has prepared a place for you in his Father's heavenly home. This is greater than any, any earthly land that you can imagine. This is the promise of eternal life residing with him. This is incredible. And the fourth promise, the final promise for today, it piggybacks on this third one. The last is his peace and death. Why? Because you have salvation. Verse 3, the very next verse. Jesus says, And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. He says, not only, not only do you have me with you here, not only do you have a place prepared for you in heaven, but you and I will be together forever. Death is scary. Death can be painful. Death can be a frightening proposition. But God's promise to Israel is Joseph will close your eyes. And God's promise to you is when you open them after you die, Jesus will be right there with you. Wow. And these are... These are just a scratching of the surface of the promises of God to those who are in Christ. We, we are, we're not even ankle deep yet, church, in, in remembering what God has promised us. Do you believe those promises? Have you trusted in the crucified and risen Savior? And are you living in light of those promises with confidence, with hope, with boldness, aiming at holiness and purity. God's people act according to God's promises. I want to invite you as I close in prayer. I want to invite you to take just a moment and close your eyes and remember, remember the promises of God, not just these ones, but I want you to think about other scriptures. I, I trust the Spirit of God will, will bring other promises to your mind, and I just want you to take this next moment and remember the, the countless promises that we have in Jesus Christ. Take this moment, you and the Lord, and, and after a moment, I will pray for us, and we'll continue to worship our God who, who makes and keeps promises.
Heavenly Father, we are overwhelmed with the, the reality of, of you, of your faithfulness, of, of the promises you make and the promises you keep. God, even now, I, I, I just, I'm considering Jacob, who is not faithful. Jacob, who is a deceiver, and yet you made promises and you kept your promises to him. And it makes me, it makes me rejoice knowing that I, am, as a sinner, have received the promise of your grace and your forgiveness. God, we thank you that your promises are not based on how good we can be. We confess that we can't be good enough, but instead your promises are built on how perfect Jesus was and is. Your promises are built on, on the fact that he died and paid the price for all of our sin and that he has been resurrected and lives forevermore, giving us brand new life in him. Thank you. Thank you for your great love. Thank you for your great promises. Thank you for saving us. And Father, I pray that, that we would leave here with our hearts heavy, not with guilt or shame, but heavy because they're so full of your love and your grace and your promises. I pray that that, that experiences of knowing your promises and knowing your faithfulness would lead us to live as, as more and more faithful stewards. Father, help us to trust you, and, and as we trust you, help us to act faithfully. Not so we can earn something. We know we can't earn anything, but, but simply so that we can show you that we love you and, and rejoice in what you've given us. And God, we pray all of this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.